0: you Hey, Cornwall Church, it is so good to have you uh, with us again today and for us to be able to be with you. And what a great weekend we had last weekend as we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus. You know, there were thousands and thousands and thousands of you that were on televisions and laptops and phones and tablets watching on the live stream on our web with the app on Facebook. And what a great celebration it was. You know, one of the things that had been asked of us as we were going into last weekend was, are we gonna do our annual tradition of the, the annual Eastern offering giveaway? It's something we've done for 13 years. And with our current reality in our world and the economically, you know, the question was, would we do that? And without, without hesitation, the leadership of your church said, absolutely, we're going to do that. And we didn't know. We didn't know what kind of response it would be. We know that you are a very generous church, but with things as they are, we just weren't sure. And I'm excited to report to you The giving that you and we did last weekend that will all be given away uh, to impact and to bless others was really mind-blowing. And and I'll get to the number here in a second. But as I thought about last uh, year as we talked about us being generous, the Generous series, we truly are living that out. And uh, I'm so grateful to be a part of a group of people that are recognizing that we have been blessed in order to be a blessing that God has given to us, and we steward what he has given to us for his glory. So the offering this last weekend uh, for the Easter giveaway, it came to the total of $119,000. And I just want to praise God for that. Thank you for that, your generosity. And I want to let you know that we will steward that responsibly to bless others. All of that will go outside the walls of our church. A a great emphasis will be on the whole COVID um, recovery and relief efforts, but also ways that God can use that to impact the world. Such a great thing. And also, as Brian mentioned, after my sermon, I gave people a chance to respond uh, to be able to live in the reality of the resurrection, to live in a forgiven way with a living hope and the power of the resurrection for life and for eternity, and 136 of you clicked on that button. And again, just want to remind you, if that was one of you, if you were one of those, we would love for you to join the Starting Point. You can click on that just right off to the right-hand side in the chat to, to be a part of that. Here's the cool thing about Starting Point this time. Since it's online, it doesn't matter if you're from Watkin County, Skagit County, Boca Raton, Belize, if you're from Zimbabwe, you can be a part of this class altogether. We'd love to have you be a part of that. And I want you to know as well, if you click that button, Your pastors and your elders and others have been praying for you this week. We have been celebrating with you. We're praising God for you. And we wanna see your life flourish in Jesus Christ. And I wonder before we go any further, if we could just pause and thank God for his greatness and his faithfulness this last week. Father, you are so incredibly good. And your grace and your mercy that would cause you to so generously send your son that we could live, that we celebrated the resurrection last weekend. God, that we were able to join together and to worship you, that we as a people were able to give so generously in order to bless others. And for the lives that have been forever changed because of Jesus Christ and his resurrection power, Lord, we give you praise and we give you the glory and thanks for that. And we pray this in your wonderful name. And we all said, amen. Amen. I am so glad that you're here today. We're starting a brand new series called Still Waters. And I think this is so applicable to us in our current reality. Because of the virus that has in some ways crippled our entire world, it has brought about some secondary impact that for some of you, it's just kind of a little bit of a disruption. It's a little bit frustrating, maybe inconvenient. For others of you, you have found yourself maybe like completely disabled, uh, that, that, that the worry and the fear and the stress and the anxiety is, is debilitating to you. And what we're starting today is the truth out of God's word that I believe is the cure, not the cure for the virus, the cure for this worry and this stress and this anxiety and this fear. And we're going to look at a piece of scripture that is known and very familiar, but it has brought comfort, It has brought a sense of calm. It has brought confidence and hope and peace for individuals again and again and again. We're going to be studying, and I mean digging into and going deep, into Psalm 23. Years ago, there was a man named Charles Allen, and he referenced Psalm 23. He referred to it as God's psychiatry. There was another psychologist that made this statement. If everyone would read Psalm 23 every night before they went to bed, we would rarely ever see a mental breakdown. And here's my concern and here's my fear because so many of you are familiar with this that the familiarity of Psalm 23 would in some way anesthetize us, inoculate us from the power and the impact of these words. So here's what I'm inviting you to do. I'm inviting you to join me and our pastors, and our church, as we immerse ourselves in this psalm once again. As we dig into it, I'm inviting you on this journey, because we're going to spend the next six or seven weeks on this. I'm inviting you to go back and memorize this psalm, or for some of you, to freshen up the memory that you had from years ago. I'm inviting you to live with the truth of these words every single day, the psalm 23, and I believe it will transform us and I believe it's the cure and the remedy for the worry, the stress, the anxiety and all the fear in our lives. Starts off this way, familiar words, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now, we're going to get into this, and we're going to dig into this quite a bit today. But before we do, I'm going to give you a little bit of some backstory and some greater biblical context for this verse and this psalm. And I'm going to spend quite a bit of time on this, so hang with me. We will get to the verse. I promise you, we will get uh, into Psalm 23. As you may know, or may not, this was written by David. And David was the, the, the greatest king Israel ever had. Uh, when, when David was king, it was like the glory days of Israel. The, these were the golden years of Israel. Never, ever would they reach that pinnacle again. And David, David is, was not just a good king. David's like the Renaissance man. David was a mighty warrior. David was a giant killer. David was into the arts. He was a poet. David was a musician. And David had even been known to cut up a rug a time or two in his life. This is David. And we say, okay, this great David. But I want us to back up before that. When David was a little boy, when David was just a a little guy, there was another king in Israel and his name was Saul. And Saul was the first king of Israel. And Saul was head and shoulders above everybody else. But he was not a good king. And there came a time where God said, I have rejected Saul as the king of my people. And he went to his prophet Samuel and said, I want you to anoint the next king of Israel. The heir apparent, as it were, or in this case, the heir definitive. God had already decided who would succeed Saul as the king of Israel. Saul would continue on, but this individual would be anointed. It would kind of be the king elect until Saul had finally died. And so the word of God comes to Samuel, and he says this, I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Now, here's a little bit of a quiz for you. I'm going to have a couple quiz questions for you today. Bethlehem. That's a fam- not Bellingham, Bethlehem. Familiar town. Can you think of anyone else of biblical significance that is from Bethlehem? Now, if you said Boaz... That is a correct answer, but that's not the answer I'm looking for. The answer I'm looking for on who else is of biblical significance from Bethlehem is the classic Sunday school answer, and we all said it together, Jesus, absolutely. So Samuel goes to Bethlehem, and when he comes into town, the town people freak out because they know he's the prophet of God. And the prophet would speak on God's behalf to the people, and very rarely was it a good message. Usually it was, you're messing up, if you don't change, there's gonna be some ensuing doom. So so when they saw the prophet, they freaked out like, what is the message he's coming to bring us? It scared them to death. Like when I was in grade school, if the principal came to the, the classroom and spoke to the teacher, and then she said, Bobby, could you go with Mr. Brandenburg back to the principal's office? I mean, that was like total terror. You knew nothing, not that that ever happened too much, but you knew that was terror. If a policeman shows up at your front door, most of you, your immediate thought is, "Uh uh-oh, what's wrong? What happened? What's he gonna tell me? Uh, Sometimes I get this. I'll I'll call someone and say, hey, this is Pastor Bob, and say, "Uh uh-oh, what did I do wrong? I don't know what it is about titles with P. Principals, police, pastors, and prophets, but apparently were the messengers of doom. So Samuel comes to this town. They're freaked out because the prophet of God is there. And he says, whoa, 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 take it easy. I'm here to to make a sacrifice, and I want to invite you to join in. And he invites Jesse and his family to come be a part of this sacrifice because he knows that God is going to reveal to him which one of Jesse's sons is to be the next king. So the first son, probably oldest, Eliab, he comes and Samuel's thinking, surely this is the Lord's anointed. And this is that classic line out of Samuel where God says to him, man looks at the outside, God looks at the heart. Oh, what a great line. He says, no, that's not the one. And Jesse starts bringing his sons, probably from the oldest to the youngest, through. Is this one? Nope. Is this one? Nope. Is this one? Nope. Seven sons come through here. All these sons of Jesse... Samuel said, none of them. And they're all kind of scratching their head. This is odd. So Samuel, he says, he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? (laughs) Like, you've got seven. Did you forget some? I mean, are there some more that you, you know, that's a lot of sons. Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. There's the little guy, the young one, the runt, the, the kid, but he's out tending the sheep. Samuel says, okay, I tell you what. Someone go get him. I don't care who, it, go get him. And no one sits down until he comes back. So they go get this youngest son and they bring him back in. Now, depending on your translation, it probably talks about his appearance. Some say that he was ruddy, kind of a, a, a reddish, you know, maybe a redheaded guy, good looking man. Some say that he was dark. Some, some of your translations say he was handsome. Some talk about his eyes. But when this young boy comes in, this young boy that's been out tending sheep, the Spirit of the Lord let Samuel know this is the one. And this is what happens. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. So David is this young man from Bethlehem, and now he has been anointed that someday he will be the king, and the Spirit of the Lord comes on him with power. And think, of course, comes on him with power, and he kills the lion, and he kills the bear, and he kills Goliath, and he's a great warrior. That was way down the road. Six weeks ago, maybe seven, I was in Bethlehem, and I took a picture of a young man in Bethlehem. Here's a little boy with his sheep. And the reason I took this is because this little guy, uh, young man, is probably 13, 14 years of age. Most scholars would agree that when Samuel anointed David, David was probably somewhere between 10 and 15 years old. Not any older than this young man right here. And while we know that David became king when he was 30, and we hear a lot about what goes on in his life during his 20s, if he's between 10 and 15, he's going to spend the next 5 to 10 years anointed as the king definitive, someday the king elect, but he's going to spend those years tending the sheep. This qualifies him in a very unique way to write this psalm, Psalm 23. But what we find is when he writes the psalm, and no one knows how old he was when he wrote it, probably later in life. But when he writes the psalm, David the shepherd writes from the perspective of the sheep. It's an interesting way that he approaches this, not as the shepherd, but as the sheep. And he had spent time with sheep. And because of the time and because of his experience and because of his knowledge, these words were so rich and so full to him. And it's not the only time. There are other times. Some of you, again, are aware, David wrote a lot of these Psalms and not... Uh, Psalm 23 is not the only one that spoke about this whole idea of the shepherd and the sheep. Uh, for instance, Psalm 100 says this, Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Again, here's this picture of God being uh, you know, this one who has this pasture and we are his sheep, this whole, this whole concept. So Psalm 23. Psalm 23 has been impacting people for years and years and years. This psalm, this section of scripture we're going to look at, is 3,000 years old. Now this psalm in our day and age is the best known and the most loved psalm in the whole Bible. And what makes us think that that hasn't always been the case? Maybe the reason it's so meaningful to us is because it's been so meaningful to people throughout the centuries, throughout the millennia, that maybe this was the favorite psalm of the prophets. Maybe this was the favorite psalm of the disciples. Maybe this was the favorite psalm of Paul in the, in the early church and throughout church history and throughout humanity for the last 3,000 years. Maybe this has always been the most loved and best known psalm. And here's what's interesting about It's that this psalm only has six verses and 113 words. Now, depending on your translation, some might have up to 115, so don't get technical on me. Six verses, 113 words. You know, right now with our our current situation, um, there was given this thing called the CARES Act, the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Securities Act. That's what CARES stands for. The CARES Act, I went on an NPR uh, website, and you can read it in its entirety. I did not because it is 880 pages long. And while I'm grateful for it and what it brings to our nation, I believe that these six verses and these 113 words are far greater to bring us hope, peace, comfort, confidence in the midst of our worry, stress, anxiety, and fear than the CARES Act is. Because while it's just a few verses and just 113 words, it is inexhaustible and its significance. This little psalm is like this deep well that we can draw deeply from with just these refreshing, life-giving waters that we can drink of over and over again, and that's what I want us to do. I want us to dig deeply into this well. In in the psalm uh, is the the whole idea of a, a relationship between a shepherd and his sheep. What's interesting in the Bible is that the top two pictures that God uses to communicate his His identity and his relationship with us, the first one is as a father. That's why Jesus said, our father who art in heaven. The second one is as a shepherd. The relationship of a father to a son and the relationship of a shepherd to his sheep. And to understand that, that relationship. Now, Using the sheep shepherd analogy or, or a comparison is not original to David and it's not exclusive to David. You find this throughout the pages of scripture. Back, hang with me, we're still, we're still in this context. We're gonna to get to it, okay? Back up 800 years, Genesis chapter 48, I believe. Jacob, the old man Jacob is getting ready to die. He's also known as Israel. He has these 12 sons and one of his sons is Joseph. And Joseph has two sons, uh, Manasseh and, and Ephraim. And he's getting ready to die. And, and Joseph brings his two boys before old man Jacob. And Jacob crosses his arms to bless them. And in this blessing, he says these words. May the God, and here, here you see it for, the, for, for way back. May the God who has been my shepherd all of my life, even to these days, bless these boys. So even old Jacob is talking about God being his shepherd. And then, of course, David writes about it. And then 400 years after David, Ezekiel the prophet comes. And if you read Ezekiel chapter 34, which is a great chapter, it's a great companion chapter for for, uh, Psalm 23. You just see this picture again and again and again in Ezekiel 34. It says, for this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. And over and over again throughout Ezekiel 34, you just see how God is the shepherd and how he's going after his sheep and the relationship there. What's interesting is that at uh, about verse 23, Ezekiel gives us prophecy about one shepherd. Look at this. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them He will tend them and be their shepherd. Now, if you just think, oh, well, of course, he's talking about David. No, no, no. David died 400 years before this was written. He's talking about someone else, one shepherd, but why would he say, my servant David? Well, let me just quickly explain that, and we're getting there, okay? That when they understood David was the Davidic line, the, the, the lineage of David, the house of David, that it would be from David's bloodline that the Messiah would come someday, the one shepherd. Someday there would come a Messiah and he would be of the line of David. He would be, uh, from this Davidic line, he would, he would be um, a son of David. So he talks about this one shepherd. All right, now, real quick, we're gonna have a little quiz and, and I'm gonna give you multiple choice so it should be easy and you can just say it out loud right there in your living room or in your bedroom or wherever you are. So it's a Christmas quiz. There's three questions on it. According to Luke chapter two, here we go. According to Luke chapter two, in the the first year that Quirinius was governor of Syria, Caesar Augustus decided that there would be a census taken in the whole Roman Empire. Joseph, who is betrothed or pledged to be married to Mary, leaves Nazareth for this census and goes to, question number one, to which town? Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Bellingham, Bethlehem, or Linden? All right, go ahead and say your answer. All right, if you said Bethlehem, you, you got a point. Great, you're doing great. So Joseph goes with his, uh, his betrothed, Mary, from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Why does he go? Is it because he is of the lineage of the house of the line of David Hasselhoff, David the son of Jesse, or Davy Jones? Go ahead and answer your question. If you said, David, the son of Jesse, you are yet again correct. And third question, while they are there, it came time for Mary to have a child. And she gives birth to her son, a firstborn, a son. She wraps him in swaddling clothes and places him in the manger. They give him the name, A, Tiglath-Pileser, B, Jesus, 3, Kip. All right, answers, Jesus. Okay, no, this is going somewhere. Hang in there with me. This is going somewhere. So now what we have, according to Luke chapter 2 and according to the quiz we just took, we have Jesus who is born in Bethlehem and comes from the line of David. In John chapter 7, they said, does not the scripture say that the Christ, the Messiah, will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Okay. So now we have this concept of God being a shepherd. Clear back to Jacob in, in Genesis uh, chapter 48. We have David talking about it, and that's what we're going to study here in just a minute. We have Ezekiel 400 years later talking about God being this shepherd and prophesying that there would be one shepherd that would come. And then we see that it's this. So we think, okay, we've got all this Old Testament. You know, we've got the, the, the history books. We've got the prophecies. We've, we've got the, the wisdom literature. And, and we've also got Christmas. What are we missing? Easter. Easter, that was last week. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 13 says, may the God of peace who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead, now we got Easter thrown in here, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. Okay, I know, a lot of background, a lot of context. Here's what we're getting at, and I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, is that when you start talking about this concept of God being our shepherd and us being the sheep, you see this is a theme throughout scripture. Max Licato said this about Psalm 23. It was written by a shepherd who became a king so that we could know about a king who became a shepherd. From the lowliest shepherd, exalted to be a king, to tell us about the king of kings who came down to be a shepherd, and can we take it even one step lower, became the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Introduction finished. All right, so let's get into it. Psalm 23, verse one, starts off this way. The Lord is my shepherd. Now, in this series, we're gonna go verse by verse, like, like one verse per week. Verse by verse. In fact, today in uh, the next few minutes, I want to go word by word on this opening phrase, "The Lord is my shepherd," because long before he ever gets into thing, before the what, he addresses the who. David addresses the who when he says, the Lord. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because I've referenced it several times if you've been with us, even in the last few weeks. I've talked about when you see in your Bible, Lord with all caps, it's not a title, it's his name. It's the, in fact, originally it was just four letters with no vowels. It was just four continents. Yod, he, vav, he. It's the word that we get um, Yahweh from. It's from, from when, when Moses was there before the burning bush. And again, we're going to get into this a lot this summer when we study, uh, study Moses and his life. But it's the very name of God. And what it means is it's kind of this idea of, of, of being, to be, to, to cause to be. Um, it's been translated I am or I am that I am. I am this, the, the self-sufficient one, the self-sustaining one, the, the one that is the source of all things. I cause things to be because I am. I am. Years ago, and many of you are not old enough to remember this. I'm actually not old enough to remember this. Years ago, Doris Day sang this song, and I'm not going to sing it for you. K sera, sera. Whatever will be, will be. It, it was the precursor to whatever, whatever will be, will be. We, we, we have no control. We don't know. And, and some of you would say, hey, it is what it is. Just accept it. It is what it is. Well, God comes along. And he says, it's not a case of Ross And it's not, it is what it is. I am that I am. And David starts off with this. And he said, let's be really clear who we're talking about here. And in the Bible, when you, when you talk about God, the great I am, this unlimited one, this all powerful one, you just see that this is the God who is within himself complete and, and is the source and the sustainer of all things. I love this in Jeremiah where it says, ah, sovereign Lord, and there it is again, and sovereign, we just talked about that a couple weeks ago. Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. So David just starts off this psalm and says, hey, let's be really clear who we're talking about. We're talking about the sovereign Lord who is unlimited, who is all powerful. And that gives him all the credentials necessary to follow him, to submit to him, to surrender to him, to worship him. And one author said this, in these opening words, the Lord, the psalmist spends the next 113, 111 words explaining the first two. The Lord, and then two little letters, is. Not was, not will be, but is. The Lord is. And of course, the Lord is. I am that I am. I, he just is. But what you find is throughout the entire psalm is that the verbs are all present tense. And now this is important in this case when it's talking about the Lord is, it's talking about the God who's the same yesterday, today, forever, the God who, is, who never changes, the, the one who is the immutable God that, that he just is. But throughout, it talks about what he's doing, not just, while it's true, what he's done, yes, and what he will do, yes, but it's always in the present tense what he is doing in our life. And it's as if to say God is the present tense, which is really a good thing to know the present tense when your present is tense, which is where we are right now. And to have the present tense, the Lord is. And then he says, the Lord is my. And So it's not just present, it's present and personal. That when, when David is writing about this Lord, this Yahweh, this God, I am that I am, he's not just giving some ethereal treatise on philosophical views of theoretical ideas about God, not even theological. He's saying, this is very personal. I mean, you look at the personal pronouns in this psalm. I, me, my, 17 times he uses personal pronouns in six verses. 17 times he comes back to this. And he starts off with this possessive personal pronoun. The Lord is my. And it's not a possessive like, I own the Lord. Or, or, you know, I command the Lord. It's not like he's saying, the Lord, Yahweh, belongs to me and I control him. No, what he's saying is this. Because no one can own and control God. He says, God doesn't belong to me. I belong to him because he controls everything he's saying it's who he is and it's whose I am who he is Yahweh and whose I am that I am his because he is Lord God Almighty controller of all things now Louis Giglio wrote a book as kind of a cool little play on words the title of the book is this I am not, but I know I am. I am not, but I know I am. That's whose I am. Years ago, when our girls were little, we used to take them up into Canada, um, back when you could cross the border, uh, for frivolous reasons like going to the water park. And so we'd go up to this water park and... um, and we'd be swimming and going on the water slides and different things. And, and I would jump off the diving board and do a preacher seat, which I think makes a bigger splash than a cannonball or uh, a jackknife. So I'd do the preacher seat and make this big splash. And that's really the only thing I can pretty much do off of a diving board, that and a belly flop. And, uh, and all the little kids were real impressed with these splashes. So I went up and got on the board, and I did another one of these, and I swam over to the side. And my daughter, Alyssa, who was maybe eight, nine years old at the time, she said, hey, dad, when you got up on the diving board, all these kids said, hey, watch this guy. Watch his splash. And I looked at him and I said, that's my dad. That's my dad. That's right, sweetie. Who's your daddy? That's right. I'm the big splasher, the pastor of disaster. I splash the big one. So I, she was like, that's my dad. David comes along and says, the Lord, Yahweh, I am. A, that's my shepherd. I'm associated with him. I belong to him. And now listen, I know that school is out for the rest of the year, and I'm sorry for that for you kids that are missing your friends and and your senior year and your sports and and you parents that are, I'm sorry for all that. Don't use this as a homeschool lesson, what I'm getting ready to say. When we recognize that the Lord is my, it's like saying, I is his. I know, I know, horrible English, bad, bad grammar, I is his, and this is my prayer for you and me, for our whole church, for anyone watching right now. This is my prayer, is that we would be gripped by the conviction of this relational connection we have with the Almighty God. Because he is the present tense in our present tense nature. And he is God, and in whose we are, I is his. So he says, The Lord, Yahweh, is present tense, my personal shepherd. Now he's not just using picturesque language, thinking this would be a great way to kind of put this together. No, no, no. Remember, he has spent years, maybe more than a decade, as a shepherd. And when he says, The Lord is my shepherd, there are so many thoughts, so many parallels. What an illustration, what a picture because he remembers watching sheep and caring for sheep and protecting the sheep and providing for the sheep. He knew what the sheep needed and he personally took responsibility for the sheep's health, for their well-being, for their very life and he just sees this picture of how God does that for us and he remembers that the sheep looked to him because they needed him and they trusted him and they followed him. And as he who spent years as a shepherd begins to say, the Lord is my shepherd, there are so many truths, so many ideas, so many truths about God being our shepherd that I belong to him, I trust him, I need him, he protects me, he cares for me, he takes personal responsibility for my well-being. The Lord is my shepherd, I am so grateful that he said, the Lord is my shepherd, that he's a shepherd and not a cowboy. Now, no no disrespect for those of you who've got big belt buckles and boots and skull dipping, pickup truck driving, whatever. Good on you. But a cowboy, they're gonna rope, they're gonna wrestle, they're gonna wrangle, they're gonna crack a whip, they're gonna herd the cattle, they got a cattle prod, they're gonna hogtie you and brand you, head them up, move them out, rah ha! I'm glad he didn't say, The Lord is my cowboy. The Lord is my shepherd. In Isaiah chapter 40, what a beautiful, beautiful chapter about God and his magnitude, God and his unlimited nature, God and his sovereignty, God and his control, God over all things. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 10, it talks about how the sovereign one comes with power in his strong arm, this God who is strong and powerful, and then in verse 11, it says, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Wow. What a tender, caring, gentle shepherd God is that he would carry and he would lead and he would gently be there for his sheep. You know, I mentioned in Ezekiel, this prophecy that there would be one shepherd that would come from the line of David. And Jesus came and he knew that that was him. And in John chapter 10, again, most of John chapter 10 is another great parallel to Psalm uh, 23 because Jesus talks a lot about this whole idea about the shepherd and the sheep. But in John chapter 10, verse three, Jesus says, he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. No crack in the whip, no cattle prod, no... Hit him up, and hit round him up, cowboy stuff. He calls him by name, and with a familiar voice, he just walks and leads them, and they follow. That lead thing we're going to talk about that over the next couple weeks, where he leads us into uh, into green pastures and leads us into the path of righteousness. This familiar voice just calls us by name and leads us out. Not as a cowboy. You know what's interesting is that I believe, as best as I can recall, every single funeral, memorial service, and graveside graveside service I've ever done, I've read Psalm 23 at. It's just, it's a psalm that brings healing and comfort and hope for those who are grieving in the sorrow and the loss and the valley of the shadow of death. It's, and so often it can be that Psalm 23 is somehow connected with and affiliated with death because we always hear it at funerals. And it's beautiful. I will continue to do that. But what I love is that in John 10, when Jesus is talking about this whole relationship of the sheep and the shepherd, he's not talking about death. He's actually talking about life because it's in that context where we read these very familiar words, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Life with the shepherd. That's the full life. That's the best life. And he says, and I've come that you would have that life because I am the shepherd. And in case you're wondering, in case there's any doubt, he says this, I am the good shepherd. Good. So good, in fact, that he would tell a story. If there were a a hundred sheep and one of them went missing, I I wouldn't just let that one go. I would leave those 99 because I care for every sheep, for every one individually. And let me prove it to you. I'm the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep which is exactly what Jesus did when he died on the cross so that we could have life. The perfect lamb of God was sacrificed, slain, laid down his life so that we, his sheep, could have a relationship with the good shepherd. In verse 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. He repeats it. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. I know my sheep, he says. I created them. I chose them. I called them by name. I purchased them, redeemed them with my own blood. I know my sheep. I know their wants and I know their needs. I know what they're capable of. I know their vulnerabilities. I know their propensities. And I know their value. I know my sheep. I guess my bigger question for us is do we know our shepherd? He knows us, but do we know him? Do we know that he is the great shepherd, the I am, all powerful, that he is the good shepherd, cares for each one of us individually, that he is the gentle shepherd? walking with us through the most tender moments of our lives that he provides and that he protects. And then he leads us on this path to life in all of its fullness. You see, these five words, the Lord is my shepherd, are so full, and if we could own those words, understand those words, be gripped by those words, Let those words seep into our minds. That is one of the best remedies and cures for worry and stress and anxiety and fear that there is. And when we understand those words, the Lord is my shepherd, then we can say, I shall not want. Because my good shepherd, my great shepherd, my gentle shepherd has it all taken care of. I can rest assured. I have security. I have confidence in him the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. When I own that, then I can be content in my shepherd's care, knowing that he is in control, not only of my life, but of this world. He's the great I am. And he calls me by name, and he leads me through life. See, here's the deal. Is that God's word says that Jesus in Hebrews, is the great shepherd. Jesus himself said in John 10 that he is the good shepherd. And in Isaiah we read that he is the gentle shepherd. But what makes all the difference is when he becomes my shepherd. My great shepherd, not just a great shepherd. Not just the great shepherd. My great shepherd my good shepherd, my gentle shepherd. And when I live in that reality, I shall not want. One more verse and then I'll let you go. I won't let you go. We're gonna sing a song. David also wrote this one out of Psalm 95. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. If you want to be under the care of someone that will really bring peace, confidence, hope, it's under the care of the great, good, gentle shepherd. And so I'm asking, would you begin immersing yourself in this truth? Would you read Psalm 23 every single day. Would you be willing to memorize or re-memorize Psalm 23? It, it's on it's the notes. It's at the bottom of the notes there. And live with that every single day. And let that truth and journey with us as we dig into the depth, which is the cure for our anxiety, our present tense God, who he is, whose we are in him. So memorize that and let that be a part of your life. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me by still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever.